I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. This week, terror in Norway, a lone attack or a signal that the far right is rising? His argument is that the most important enemy are not the Muslims themselves, but the people who have facilitated this sort of development that he hates, which he takes to be what you know, he calls them cultural Marxists, the sort of center-left, social democratic, multiculturalist thinking that most people support. Libya, what next for Gaddafi? This frustration about this being a stalemate, I think, is a bit overdone, as lots of Libyans have pointed out, personally and in print. I mean, the world was prepared to tolerate Gaddafi for 40 years, but thinks four months is far too long to get rid of him. And China's ambitions for high-speed rail are dealt a blow. It's raised a lot of questions, not just about the railway program in China, but about the overall economic model and and the rush to invest and to grow quickly. And people in China are are asking whether quality has been sacrificed for the sake of high-speed growth. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. We start this week with the terror attacks in Norway, first a car bomb in Oslo, then an attack on a socialist youth camp on a remote island, with a total death toll now thought to be around 80, including many teenagers and young people. Joining me is the FT correspondent Robin Wigglesworth, who covered the events in Oslo, and Martin Sandbu, our economics leader writer. If we can start with you, Robin, you were born and raised in Oslo. You flew back in after this bombing. What was the scene that confronted you? I came into a town that was pretty much uh, empty. It was a sunny day, and normally you'll see people outside and drinking coffee, beers, but, you know, all you see were kind of stony-faced Norwegians, people hugging, crying. Uh, It was a very, very sombre mood. What was the extent of the devastation in central Oslo? By the time I got there, the police had basically uh, carved out that part of Oslo for reconstruction and, and to fix up and, and search for evidence. So I wasn't actually able to get to where the bomb blast was. I could see it from a distance. I mean, it carved out a massive gash into the ground, and obviously all the buildings around there were devastated. I mean, this is the heart of the Norwegian government. You know, up to seven kilometres away, people said they could hear the blast, and windows from quite a few kilometres away were shattered. Parts of Oslo looked like a war zone. Norwegian people have obviously pulled together. You had this very moving ceremony with the king and queen there. Is there anything that strikes you about the reaction that surprises you in any way, or has the country pulled together in the way you would have expected? Nothing like this has happened in Norway. So it was just such a shock to the system. I think for the first few days, Norwegians were just bewildered. People couldn't understand, especially once it came out that this was a Norwegian, a man from a privileged part of a privileged town in one of the most privileged countries in the world. So it was this confusion of how this could happen. After that, you could see the reaction in a more classically Norwegian way. You know, we shall have come, keep calm, carry on. And very much, you know, let's think of the victims the day before I left, they had this big march. It was supposed to be a march in all the towns in Norway. In fact, in most towns, it became so big. It's the largest gathering of people I've ever seen in Norway. And the sun came out, people held hands, held roses, and it was quite a touching uh, memorial. Robin, thank you very much. 
I'll turn now to a, another of our colleagues, Martin Sandbu, also born and brought up in, in Oslo. Martin, it's tempting to say that this was just the act of a lone madman and therefore there's no wider moral to draw about Norwegian society, but I, I know you disagree with that. That's right. I think it'd be a mistake and it's a somewhat dangerous mistake to just dismiss this as a crazy loner. I mean, in a sense, of course, he is a crazy loner and all the indications are that he was alone in this and you hope that there are no other crazy loners like that out there. So in that sense, it is a unique case. And it's interesting to see that the uh, security agency in Norway has not raised its threat assessment. But even so, I think it's important to, if not quite sort of listen, but to at least take seriously the kinds of strange and bizarre and horrific arguments that this man has put forward. I mean, we know that this was certainly done for political purposes. And just an hour before he set off to start the attacks, he published on the internet and sent to thousands of people this 1,500-page manifesto. He claims to represent frustrations that it's true that a significant minority of people probably feel. There are a lot of people who are worried about the rise of Islam in Europe and so, so on. So what you're saying is that even if his actions were completely at, at the fringes, the arguments that he makes do have some sort of reflection in the concerns of the wider society. I think that many things that he writes in his manifesto are things that people who read it will sit and nod and say, yeah, I sort of agree with some of this. That there is an uncontrolled rise in first immigration, but more specifically Muslim immigration to Europe. This is something you hear all around Europe, really. And then, of course, he slides further and further down the line of saying that this has risks, this is harmful, this is bad, this is cultural genocide on indigenous Europeans is where he ends up. It's peculiar, isn't it, that he then attacks other Europeans. He doesn't attack the Muslim community. It's a sort of twisted logic. That, that's right. But there is a sort of, I think I've used the word diabolical coherence to it. His argument is that the most important enemy are not the Muslims themselves, but the people who have facilitated this sort of development that he hates, which he takes to be what you know, he calls them cultural Marxists, the sort of center-left, social democratic, multiculturalist thinking that most people support, but he really hates it, and he decided to hit the core of that sort of thinking and politics in Norway, which is the Labour Party and the Labour Youth Party. Now, there's something very interesting about this, which is that you see the same strategy in Islamic terrorism often. There are attacks on Western civilians and Western military, but there are a lot of attacks on Muslim country governments because they are seen as the traitors that sold out the Muslim world to the West. And that's the other lesson I wanted to point to. If you look at his manifesto, you see how universal the logic of terrorism actually is. He talks about, you know, a medieval Christian Europe and the fight against Islam. But strip away the specific things he claims to defend. And the basic logic is exactly the same as what you see in Islamic terrorism, in left-wing terrorism a couple of decades back. There is this idea of something pure that needs to be defended against external enemies, and you have to hit at the external enemies and the internal traitors. And I think it's useful to read his stuff in order to see that, that there is a logic of extremism that can appear in every kind of culture. That would be a useful lesson to draw, I think, from this. What then is the reaction? Do you go any way to meet concerns about Islamic influence on Europe or do you react in some other way? I think there are three kinds of reactions to think about here. One, just to get that out of the way, is just on the security level, what do you do? And I would hope that because this was such a, a freak incident, I hope Norway does not clamp down too much and that they keep the sort of openness and low level of security that they've had. The second thing is what you mentioned a sort of general worry about Islam in some parts of the population. Uh, and I do think it's important to make sure that there is some sort of outlet 
for those who worry, but would never go as far as to commit violence, but that have legitimate worries. I happen not to agree with those worries, but I do see that there are people who have them, and they need to feel that they can state their worries without being either discriminated against or silenced, and so on. And the third thing is linked to that. What we do want to look very hard into is the existence of extremist right-wing thinking, violent right-wing thinking in Europe. And that's something I think probably has dropped a little bit off the radar screen, given all the focus on Islamic terrorism. Okay, Martin, thank you very much. Let's move to Libya. Five months into the crisis and Colonel Gaddafi is still in power. And as the stalemate continues, both France and Britain have floated the suggestion that if Colonel Gaddafi were to step down, he might be allowed to stay on Libyan soil. Joining me in the studio is the FT's international affairs editor, David Garner. David, this looks like perhaps a sign of weakness on the part of the Allies. Is, is that how you see it? No, not necessarily. Starting from the basics here, first of all, this frustration about this being a stalemate I think is a bit overdone, as lots of Libyans have pointed out, personally and in print. I mean, the world was prepared to tolerate Gaddafi for 40 years, but thinks four months is far too long to get rid of him. It was never going to be as easy as that because of the nature of the man and the nature of his regime. It follows from that, I think, well, two things. First of all, I think both within the Allies, within the rebels, and between the Allies and the rebels, there is absolute consensus on the fact that Gaddafi, his sons, and his closest henchmen have absolutely no future in the politics or governance of the country. So no disarray there. Now... It seems to me that in practice, Gaddafi and his close followers are never actually going to give up and accept any of the options on the table. But it seems to me tactically no harm at all in having a range of options dangling in front of the next circle of his entourage, ranging from the International Criminal Court. You too can sit in the dock with Gaddafi and his family some form of exile, perhaps to Senegal and so on, and then finally this option of staying inside the country, which I don't think in practical terms is ever going to happen. But tactically, if that works and preys on the minds of the people who are keeping this residual regime in power at the same time as the military effort is maintained, then that is going to crack the cohesion of this regime, which I think it's only a matter of time before it does implode. So you see it as a, a mind game rather than a serious offer, but let's just for a moment consider it as a serious offer. I mean, mm -hmm. is it even conceivable that Colonel Gaddafi could go, Libya's a big country, but that he could go and sit in some remote corner of the desert with however hundred, many hundreds of million he's allowed and just not cause any trouble? And presumably, if he's on Libyan soil, there has to be a question about whether he would attempt to seize power again. Well, given his record, which from the start was of meddling in neighboring countries, in European countries, and indeed, you know, across much of the world and throughout Africa, I think that it requires a suspension of disbelief, which is, 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 is uh, no, you're absolutely right. Of course, he would be a, a subversive force and would be trying to get back into the game. If the real agenda is still to get rid of him, get him out of Libya, kill him, something, and replace the Gaddafi regime, what's your interpretation of what's happening in military terms? I think that the pressure is intense and, in some respects, on the ground intensifying 
above all from the western mountains. There is, as you constantly see, toing and froing between this town was captured, then it was recaptured, and so on and so forth. But I think the direction of travel is reasonably clear. And I wouldn't expect to see, in any event, some sort of decisive military victory. This is not going to be the taking of Tripoli by military means and then, you know, house-to-house fighting and all that sort of thing. I don't think that's where it's going. I think it's a combination of intensified military pressure, and the Allies have made clear that's what's going to happen, combined with working to crack the cohesion of the regime. I mean, that has happened in other instances. It's ultimately, I know it was a lot faster, but a lot had preceded it. That was ultimately what brought down Milosevic. David, thank you very much indeed. Our final topic for today is China and a deadly train crash that could scupper the country's ambitious plans for becoming a global leader in high-speed rail. Serena Tarling spoke to the FT's Simon Rabinovich, who's based in Beijing, and she asked him about the accident. On Saturday evening, there were two um, high-speed trains heading for Fuzhou, which is the capital of Fujian province in the southeast of China. One train was about 15 minutes ahead of the other on the tracks, It stopped for some reason, and the other train that was behind it struck it at what seems to have been full speed. At this point, 39 people have been confirmed as dead, and 200 people or so were injured in this accident. Is there a question mark over the safety of the rails themselves? Absolutely. It's quite instructive to look at the parallel with uh, Japan's Shinkansen bullet lines, Uh, They've been operating for 47 years, and they've never had any kind of serious accident or uh, derailment causing a fatality. In Japan, and people presume this is the system in China as well, train tracks are supposed to be divided into a series of blocks. And when one train enters into another block where another train already is, it is supposed to trigger an emergency brake system. If that system existed in China, and it should exist, It clearly failed. There's questions involving the tracks, the signaling functions, um, the emergency brake system. And there's also questions about the actual uh, driver skill. There have been reports before about drivers being trained up very, very quickly. In fact, using material that may have been hastily translated into Chinese from instruction manuals in, in German or in English. So there's also questions about the actual skill of the drivers and now, I guess, questions about the skill of the engineers as well. Other than being a terrible tragedy, why is the crash such a blow for China? Well, the first thing to say is that it's not the first train accident in China. There was one that killed even more people, 70 people in 2008. But it's the first accident involving China's high-speed rail. And this has been a real showcase project for China, uh, for the government to show both the domestic population, but also to show the world how far China has come along. So the first and most obvious blow for China is that its railway companies, both the the makers of, of railway equipment as well as the makers of the trains themselves, had been hoping to forge out into the world. And they had begun to sign a couple of small deals in Venezuela, in Peru, in Malaysia. And now very clearly, this will be a big setback for them. And, and whether or not they'll be able to regain the trust of potential customers will be a question in the years ahead. The other point is that given how important this was for China, both domestically and internationally in terms of of burnishing its image and showing that it was capable of of very high-skilled, high-value development. This really does reflect quite poorly, and it's raised a lot of questions 
not just about the railway program in China, but about the overall economic model and, and the rush to invest and to grow quickly. And people in China are, are asking whether things have simply happened too quickly and, and whether um, quality has been sacrificed for the sake of high-speed growth. And the rail sector itself has been wrecked with controversy, hasn't it? It's been a very, very bad six months for the Chinese rail sector. It began with the dismissal of the former railways minister, Liu Zhijun. He was forced aside in February. Details about why still are not clear, but he was um, said to have been removed for serious disciplinary violations, which in China is usually code for quite massive corruption. And that was the first sense that things were going wrong with China's high-speed rail program. Last month, they opened up a very high-profile line between Beijing and Shanghai. Uh, It used to take 12 hours to get between the two cities. Now the train time has been reduced to four hours. That was really supposed to be the crowning accomplishment of China's high-speed rail program. Uh, That line, however, has been beset by a a series of, of failures Um, As recently as Monday, two days after the train disaster, uh, there was a series of delays that total about three hours or so for 20 trains on that line. So it's been one embarrassment after another for the high-speed rail program. That was Simon Rabinovich talking to Serena Tarling. My thanks to Robin, Martin and David in the studio here in London and to Simon Rabinovich in Beijing. World Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.